Well, for the last several Communion Sundays, we have been observing the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ through that self-descriptive phrase, I am. It all starts out in John's Gospel, chapter 8, where he really uh, alludes to God in the Old Testament as the great I am. Jesus, uh, in response to the Pharisees, said that before Abraham was, I am. And God revealed himself in the bush to Moses by saying, I am that I am. So Jesus is really conveying to them that he is the God of the Old Testament in the person of the Son of God. He also affirmed that he was the bread of life, the door of the sheepfold, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life, the light of the world, the true vine, and the resurrection and the life. We come to the book of Revelation, and we find even more of these self-attestations of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he states, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So the context in the book of Revelation is not Jesus in his initial ministry, his first coming, but to his second coming when he will judge the earth and those who reject him. Now, by the grace and guidance of God, we've passed through another year in time. There has been a beginning. There's been an ending. There's been a first day. There's been a last day. For many of us, we're thankful that that year is over. It's not been a really great year in some respects. And when a new year dawns upon us, uh, it seems to inspire new hopes and aspirations that it's going to be better than the preceding year. And until the consummation of all things when Christ comes, this passing of time is going to be steady. It's going to always be there. But all time is eclipsed by eternity. A year, a decade, a century is as nothing in God's eternal plan of the ages. And that's how and why the Lord Jesus can be called the Alpha and the Omega. And that's why our hopes are not in a new year as it dawns upon us, but in his coming to rule and reign in the world. So this morning, we're going to look at these verses that we read from the book of Revelation that reveal to us some more information about who the Lord Jesus Christ is, what he has done for us, but also what he's going to do in the future. So we're going to try to concentrate on this, perhaps uh, during Communion Sundays through this coming year. And as we begin, I'm going to give you a brief introduction to the book of Revelation Uh, because it's right here for us, it's the background, and we need to have some information about it. Now, the first thing I want you to note is the title of the book. Is it singular or is it plural? It's singular. It is not the revelations of Jesus Christ, which drives me nuts when Christians say that. It is the specific revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So get that straight. Don't be one of those people that drive me nuts 
by using the plural instead of the singular. All right? Now, this is interesting. <clears throat> we get our English word apocalypse from the term revelation. It's apocalypsis in the Greek. And we tend to think of, the, of an apocalypse as a great cataclysmic event. That's what it's come to mean. But what this really alludes to in the Bible is the unveiling or the revealing of something that has previously been undisclosed. So it's an uncovering of more about the Lord Jesus Christ, not his first coming, but what's going to happen at his second coming. Sometime in the future, we don't know when it's going to be, but it could be at any time that Christ returns. Now, when John writes here in verse 1 about things which must shortly take place, we have to realize that doesn't mean necessarily that it was going to occur quickly after he wrote it. This is a term that relates to imminence, that something is going to happen. It can happen at any time. And so it means it's going to occur soon or before long, but we don't know when. So uh, it's been a couple thousand years, and we kind of wonder if it ever is going to happen. But we have to remember again, before John wrote this, we already had four millennia of human history. So again, the idea that Christ coming quickly, or as it says in the last verse of uh, verse three, the last phrase, the time is near. Well, the time is near ever since Jesus went back to heaven. It could happen at any time. Now, the author and the date and the people that it was written to, that's always important for us to disclose but the person to whom this was revealed is a man named John. And we know that one of Christ's disciples was John. His brother was James. <clears throat> and they were in the inner circle with Peter, who seemed to be closest to Jesus. And we have a lot of information about. Now, John the Apostle has borne witness to the truth and to the word of God in verse 2. We know he bore witness because he wrote the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John tells us about the life of Jesus Christ, why he came into the world. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, letters to churches. And God has selected him now to write the last book of the Bible, written at the end of the first century, we believe around 95 AD, to tell us about the coming of the Lord Jesus in glory. <clears throat> And John, at this time in his life, is an old man. He has been exiled from Ephesus, from the mainland, and been taken to an island called Patmos, where we believe he may have been forced to work in salt mines. And imagine that, being that old and having to do that kind of work. Well, <clears throat> during this time, or shortly after he was released from there, he wrote the revelation at the end of the first century. And he pronounces a blessing on everybody who hears and who reads these words and who keeps them, which means you believe them, and you live your life according to them. And he's writing to a group of churches, verse 4 says, seven churches which are in Asia. 
Now we know that that period, that that place was in modern Turkey. It was uh, to the north and east shores of the Mediterranean Sea. And there were many more than seven churches, but these seven he wrote to, and they are kind of like a conglomerate of types of churches that could really exist at any time from then until now. So their message is still important for us today. Now, who does, uh, who do these words come from? Who reveals these to him? Well, the Lord sent an angel. It says here in verse uh, 1, uh, they were conveyed to him by an angelic being. And we know that in history, God has always revealed himself to people. He has done that directly. He spoke directly to Adam and Eve. He spoke directly to Moses and some other prophets in the Old Testament. But he also speaks indirectly through other agencies such as angels and his Holy Spirit. So whatever uh, we find in the word of God was given to men directly by God or indirectly by God, always inspired by God. So we have God's word in our hands even today. He's always the ultimate source of what we find in the Bible. Now, uh, let's take a look here because the source is really the triune God. In verse 4, he says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was, and who is to come. Now, who is that? Well, that's probably God the Father, because he specifically mentions Jesus later in that sentence. So this is God the Father, who is eternal, who has always existed. Now, God does not exist in time in a way that we can see him. He exists in eternity. He exists right now. He will always exist. He has always existed in the past. He is the eternal God who has always existed. And uh, incidentally, this is such an easy resolution to the question of origins, isn't it? You either have to believe in eternal matter, which is absurd because scientifically, let's follow the science, everybody says follow the science, Well, the science is matter is always breaking down. Matter cannot be eternal. But God is eternal. And if people would just believe that, they'd have a lot more peaceful life going on. But in our supposed human wisdom, we want to reject God, get him out of our life. Uh, We don't want to have to deal with that, so we have to make up our own ideas of where we all came from, where everything in the world came from. Now, uh, John also introduces here, though, the future aspect of God's eternity when he says, who is to come? So God is going to come, but he's going to come in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead. Remember, God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Trinity is spoken of here. And the one who will come in judgment is the Lord Jesus Christ. So that will be the time when all creatures begin to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus and profess him as Lord. Now, he also says that this is from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, what's he speaking about uh, here? Well, 
The word spirit is the Greek word pneuma, which means breath or, or spirit or wind, and it depends on the context what that uh, interpretation is. Um, and sometimes that word can be used of an angelic spirit. So some people think it's seven angels that are before the throne of God, which appear a lot of times in the book of Revelation. And in the Old Testament, there are allusions that there are angels around the throne of God. However, I think this is uh, figurative language speaking of the Holy Spirit of God, and it might be in your Bible that that word is capitalized. It kind of helps you with the interpretation. But if we if we go to chapter 4 and chapter 5 in the book of Revelation, the Spirit of God is depicted in the same way. This is figurative language. And he's depicted as seven lamps and seven eyes that go out from the throne of God and, and see everything that's going on in the world. If you go back to Zechariah chapter 4, you'll find similar language describing uh, seven lamps there and seven um, uh, eyes that is the spirit looking at everything in the world. So what this depicts is, uh, first of all, the idea of perfection and fullness and completeness. That's the number seven in the Bible. And of course, the Holy Spirit, uh, that would be descriptive of him. But also that he is omniscient and omnipotent. He sees all things. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Uh, he's all-powerful. He knows what's going on in the world. And also, he is a source of spiritual illumination, like a lamp. So this is how the Spirit's described for us in these first few chapters of Genesis. And this revelation, obviously, is coming from the Spirit of God as well. Then he goes on to say, and from Jesus Christ. Here's the key figure of the book of Revelation, the the unveiling, the disclosing of Jesus as he comes in glory to reign in the world. And at this point, we are reminded by John of certain aspects concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, his person, and his work. So this is where we want to look at uh, for the rest of our time together. These, this is the revelation of the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is named as the Alpha and the Omega in this last book of the Bible. So let's look at verse 5. <clears throat> and from Jesus Christ, we have a description of three uh, things concerning his person, who he is. And these uh, are related to messianic prophecies we find in the book of psalms and verse or excuse me psalm 89 and we're going to just uh, mention a couple of verses here so that you understand that this is something that has been prophesied from old and is coming true in the person of the lord jesus christ and first of all he's called the faithful Witness. Now we go back to Psalm 89 and verse 36. Now this is a Davidic psalm, and it's talking about really the, the promise of God to David of an everlasting dynasty. And we see here in verse 36, uh, his seed, now note, he's not going to lie to David in verse 35, his seed shall endure forever. And his throne as the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. 
Now, God promised David would have an eternal dynasty. How could that have been fulfilled in the life of David? David died. David's dead now. He's, he's buried in a tomb someplace. It had to be uh, fulfilled in a person who's eternal, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice here that he is. this is a faithful witness. So just as the, the sun and the moon rise and set every day, you can depend on that to happen, so the promise of David's eternal throne is going to be fulfilled. And it's going to be fulfilled in this person, the faithful witness, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting in that psalm, if you read it all the way through, you would find five times that the faithfulness of God is mentioned to his word. And Jesus was no less faithful in his earthly witness to his mission. Now, to be faithful means to be reliable and trustworthy. When Jesus came into the world, he truthfully testified that he was sent by God. He came down from heaven to preach the good news of the kingdom, the good news of the gospel, the good news of redemption. He gave excessive proof as to who he was, Israel's Messiah. He perfectly obeyed the law. He performed miracles. He taught the law in such a way that it awed the people who heard it. He completed his mission when he suffered and died on the cross of Calvary. And we have to remember that he was raised from the dead, the ultimate proof of his Messiahship. So that leads us to the second thing John reveals about Jesus. He's the faithful witness and the firstborn from the dead. And firstborn is also mentioned uh, back in uh, Isaiah 89. We're not going to take a look at that, but it's mentioned there as well in another uh, respect. But what's it mean here when it says Jesus was firstborn from the dead? Well, it's talking about his resurrection, that he was first in order and first in rank to be raised up from the dead. Now, a few people were raised up from the dead in the Old Testament. Uh, you might remember when um, Elijah raised someone up from the dead. So did, um, uh, can't think of it now, Elijah, okay? Uh, there were a couple of incidences where someone was ra- who died was raised back up into this life, physical life. In the New Testament, this happened as well. As a matter of fact, Jesus raised up three people from the dead. The story of uh, the daughter of Jairus, who soon after she died, Jesus raised her up. Then one day, Jesus met a funeral procession Uh, And the son of the widow of Nain was the one who's being taken to be buried. So he's been dead for a while. They usually bury them on the same day. And he raises him up from the dead. Then you remember the story of Lazarus, who'd been dead for four days. He was in the grave and his body was in a state of early decomposition. And Jesus raised him up from the dead. But all these people were raised back into their former physical body. Jesus is firstborn because he was raised up in a glorious body, uh, a perfect body for the perfect human being, the God-man, 
who is the progenitor of everyone who trusts in him, who someday will be raised from the dead and their soul will be rejoined to a perfect, glorious body. So he's the firstborn of the dead in that sense of being the first uh, human being with a spiritual, glorious body to house the soul. Now, the last thing we have mentioned here about Jesus and who he is, is that he is the ruler over the kings of the earth. In other words, he's the prince of all the kings of the earth. Currently, he is not seen that way at all. Matter of fact, people don't even want to think about that. But his dominion, although it's not recognized by humanity, doesn't change the truth that it is there. We just can't see it yet. And when he returns to his rightful position, it will truly be a sad day for the kings of the earth because they'll know immediately who Jesus is. But for us, that's going to be a glorious day. We get angry and frustrated that the rulers of the earth today, don't we? Well, why? Why do we get frustrated? Well, because... They're not ruling the way God says you should rule. They are ignoring uh, uh, God's word and God's way. But then we have to think, well, how can they do that if they don't know, know him? They can't really do it. They're lifted up in pride. They think they're doing uh, what's best for humanity or for their own ends in many cases. But the vast majority fail because they don't really know how to rule. And all that will change when the Lord Jesus comes back as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler of all the kings of the world. Now, that is describing some things about his person. John goes on in this chapter and tells us some things that Jesus has done that we already have witnessed, that we already know. So let's take a look at these. And this really kind of begins in the middle of verse 5 as a doxology, which is a paragraph of praise. To him who loved us. Okay, this is the first thing. Jesus left the glories of heaven because he loved us and he wanted to save us. But interestingly, the verb here is not really in the past tense. It's a present participle, which means it's something that's ongoing. Jesus didn't come into the world because he loved us in the past, and that's the end of it. He still loves us every single day. And his presence in our life is one uh, of, of love. So we experience that loving presence every single day. Now, you'll know that one of John's major themes in his writings is love. Uh, the love of God and love for God and showing you love God by obeying his commandments, things of that nature. And although the book of Revelation focuses mainly on judgment, it's interesting that John begins it by reminding us that the Lord Jesus loves his people and that abiding love is ongoing. Now, how does he show his love for us? John mentions two examples here. 
He washed us from our sins in his own blood. Okay, that's how he shows his love. Now, this is uh, interesting here because um, most of our manuscripts that we translate into English from have a different word there for the verb to wash. It differs only by one letter. And the term that we have translated in our English Bible, he washed, well, that's a true biblical concept that we find elsewhere in scriptures. And we know that Jesus washes us from our sins. He cleanses us, purifies us. Through his blood, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. But we believe that this particular word is not the right one there. This word means he released us from our sins, or he loosed us from our sins, which is equally taught in Scripture. And what this does is it alludes to our redemption through the payment of a price. We were once bond slaves to sin, but through the shedding of Christ's blood, the giving of his life, he paid the penalty of that sin. Uh, he paid the ransom price, and so we have been freed or released from the bondage of sin, and now we're free to uh, serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So that seems to be the, the concept that he's bringing out here. You remember that Peter writes, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So the Lord Jesus uh, is the one who washes us from our sins, and he is the one who releases us from its penalty and power. He goes on to say here, in verse 6, that Jesus has also made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Okay, well, what does that mean? <clears throat> More literally, he has made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. So both those concepts are here. So that reminds us that we as God's people are no longer citizens of this world. We're citizens of heaven. We're in his spiritual kingdom. That kingdom will last forever. It's not really as visible now as it will be in the future, but it is something that is eternal. John recorded the response of Jesus when Pilate asked him, are you king of the Jews you remember what Jesus said? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. But, my, but now my kingdom is not from here. His kingdom is spiritual, it's heavenly, it's eternal. Now in this kingdom, we are priests. He's made us priests. So let's think about that. A priest in the Old Testament was a mediator that helped people come to God and uh, through them and the work they did, the people could have uh, an assurance of sins forgiven. 
We now have direct access to God. We don't need a mediator. We can go to him in prayer at any time. And we can act the way the priests act directly because of what Christ has done for us. Those priests were servants of God who were supposed to care for his temple, teach the people his ways, and live those ways before them. We're now able to serve God, even as the priests of old did, but directly through the agency of his word and his spirit. So we are all now priests of God who can speak to God, who can hear and understand his word and serve him with our lives. Now, these truths about what Christ has done then leads John to well up in praise to God and say to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And of course, we all should have that kind of a spirit within us, thanking the Lord, giving glory to Christ for all he's done for us. Now, John's not yet done. He's revealed some truths about who Jesus is, some things that he has done in the past, but we see there is more God has promised that Jesus is going to do that has not yet taken place. And here we look at verses 7 and 8, a revelation of what he's going to do. Behold, he's coming with clouds. Well, the word behold there, we're going to find that a number of times in the book of Revelation, but what that does is it calls our attention to an important thought, important idea. So behold, straighten up, listen to what I have to say here. He is coming with clouds. Do you remember how Jesus went back to heaven in Acts chapter 1? It says he went up, he ascended, and a a cloud took him back into heaven. And the angel that was there explained this to the disciples, says, as you've seen him go up into heaven, so he's going to come again. He's going to come in cloud. And of course, that cloud is going to be a a cloud of of glory and wonder and fear for those who uh, have refused the Lord Jesus Christ. But the angel says he's going to come back the same way he went up. And that has to do with a cloud of glory. Not only this, it says that every eye will see him. You know that we live in an age where within a few minutes, every eye can see the current news. We don't have to be there physically to see it happening. Can you imagine where Jesus comes and the cameras are focused on that coming uh, and in seconds, that's going all around the world and every eye is going to be seeing it. Now, I believe the Lord can come in such a way and make it possible that every eye will literally see it. But I can see where technologically, even though you're not where that location is, you still are going to be able to see it. Everybody, every eye can see that. And it's going to be such an amazing thing. Everybody's going to want to see that. All right? So when he comes in this way, it's going to be different than what we believe the rapture is going to be, because not every eye is going to see that. That coming is the church, 
And that's kind of a secret coming. But this one is a coming that everybody will see and experience, even they who pierced him. Now, what does that mean? Well, uh, obviously, since the Lord hasn't come, it can't mean the people who actually were responsible of putting him on the cross, which were the Jews and the Romans, the Jews and the Gentiles, if you will. But everybody who rejects Christ is in one of those categories, and if they had lived back then, they would have pierced him as well. So the idea there is everyone who has rejected him is going to see him, and this is what they're going to be feeling. They're going to mourn because of him. All the tribes of the earth, every family, every ethnic group, when they see him come, they're going to mourn because of him. And why are they going to mourn? Are they sad because they see him pierced? They see his pierced hands and feet and side? No, they're sad. They're mourning because they're going to see him coming, not in salvation, but in judgment. Jesus came the first time to save. John Rice said uh, that he didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. But the second time he comes is going to be for a different purpose. He's going to come in judgment of the world. The tribes of the earth are going to see that and they're going to mourn. They're going to be sad. And then John concludes by saying, even so, amen, a double confirmation that this is going to happen. Amen means so be it. Christ is surely going to come in judgment. And verse 8, the Lord gives a final affirmation of this truth, and that's where we see the title, the Alpha and the Omega. And you are familiar, most of you, with the uh, meaning of these two words. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek uh, alphabet. It's like A in the English alphabet. Omega is the last letter So it's like Z in the English alphabet. And so you have the idea of the beginning and the end, the first and the last. But we're not talking about alphabets. We're talking about um, all things. That Jesus is the beginning. Jesus is the ending. Everything's about him. Everything's going to culminate in his coming. Now, This particular statement, when we find it four times in the book of Revelation, it's not always clear if it's God the Father or God the Son who is speaking. Here, it seems to be that God the Father is affirming the second coming of the Son in judgment because he repeats the phrase, who is and who was, and who is to come, and then the title, the Almighty, that usually alludes to God the Father. So probably in this verse, we're talking about God the Father, who has the same characteristics as God the Son, because they're co-equal. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of the end, who is, who was, and who is to come. He is the Almighty One, 
But all these are true of Christ as well. And later on, we'll see that Christ actually says this of himself. So we're talking about God coming in the person of Christ and now God giving his stamp of truth and approval that this indeed is going to happen. So people need to understand it. They need to wake up. They need to repent before it's too late. So God's the beginning of all things. God is going to consummate all things in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're looking forward to the end of all things. We're really kind of more familiar with the beginning of all things leading up to where we are right now. But the book of Revelation tells a little bit about the the ending of all things. Now I want to conclude this morning by going to Colossians chapter 1. And Paul is writing here about the Lord Jesus Christ. And really his description is, is informing us of this preeminence of Christ as all things conclude in him. And I want to read verses 15 through 18 from Colossians chapter 1. So let's turn there. Here's what Paul writes, and just kind of keep your mind focused on what John has said in the Revelation and what Paul's saying here in, in the parallels that we see there. He, this meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, that's the beginning, that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So there's the beginning and also things that are. And he is before all things, And in him all things consist, or they hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So that's the conclusion of everything, where Jesus is seen by all people to be preeminent over all things, and they will bow the knee to him whether they want to or not. So as the Alpha and the Omega. The Lord Jesus has done many things. He has completed his role in the creation of all things, as Paul alludes to here. He came into the world as God's faithful witness who provided the atonement for our sins. He was raised up as the first fruits of a glorious body fit for heaven. He was he's made us part of his kingdom which means that we have direct access to God and we serve God as priests with our life. He's also coming again to judge the world, those who refuse to receive him as Savior, and he will govern the world with his righteous and holy ones. And as his people, we are responsible to give him honor and glory every day, to be faithful witnesses to him until he comes, and to serve him in his kingdom, the church. That should be our goal, that should be our desire as we come into a new year with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful for your word, for the truth it conveys to us about the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful, Lord, for the truth that he is the beginning 
that he was there, that he had his place in creation. We're thankful, Lord, that he came into the world the first time to save us. But Lord, help us always remember he's coming again uh, to take us to be with him for all of eternity and to rule this world in righteous judgment. Help us, Lord, to look forward to that day and serve you until that day comes. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.